This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode features discussion of addiction and trauma that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. On the night of June 22, 1969, Mickey Deans awoke in his London cottage to find the other side of the bed empty. He saw a crack of light seeping out from under the bathroom door and knew his wife must be awake. But minutes passed, and she didn't emerge from the bathroom. He couldn't hear her shuffling. The entire house was eerily silent. His heart quickened. He strode across the apartment to the bathroom. He called her name. No answer. A lump formed in his throat as he slowly opened the door. He knew what he would find even before he saw her. Mickey called for an ambulance. He tried his best to wake her, but he knew it was in vain. His wife was gone. After battling a horrendous barbiturate addiction for years, she had overdosed. In mere hours, newspapers would herald her passing, each referencing the movie that had made her famous. The same headline recycled again and again. Judy Garland now somewhere over the rainbow. It seemed a fitting tribute. The Wizard of Oz made Judy Garland famous, but it also ultimately took her life. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. In this show, we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. Today is our final episode on the dark side of Hollywood. Join us again next week as we begin a new journey into the dark side of music. This week, we'll take a look at one of the most beloved movies of all time, the Wizard of Oz, and delve into the horrendous working conditions that nearly took the life of more than one actor on set. Nobody was willing to sacrifice more for the film than Judy Garland, who knew this would be her first box office smash. 
If the film wasn't a roaring success, she knew she'd never get another lead role. But this also allowed studio executives to push her into a life of addiction and crash diets so extreme that they eventually took her life. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the Summer of 69. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. As mayor of the Munskern City, in the county of the land of Oz. Since its premiere on August 25, 1939, it has become one of the most widely known and beloved films in the world. In fact, in the 80 years since its release, The Wizard of Oz has become the most watched film ever. Before it was a film, The Wizard of Oz began as a book series known as the Oz Books, a collection of 14 books written by L. Frank Baum, published between 1900 and 1920. After his death, an additional 19 books were penned by his successor, Ruth Plumley Thompson. Needless to say, the world of Oz was a rich one, beloved by generations of children. MGM Studios began adapting the books into a screenplay in June 1938. They had no idea they were creating what would become one of the most treasured films of all time. Anyone who has seen the movie will remember the Emerald City, a bright green glittering utopia on a hill. And in many ways, it has come to represent the movie as a whole, a glittering success that has captured the hearts of three generations of Americans. But anyone who has read the Wizard of Oz books will attest this green, sparkling version of the Emerald City was never what author L. Frank Baum intended. In the books, the city is actually dreary and gray. The citizens of the Emerald City wear green-tinted glasses so that everything around them appears beautiful. In hindsight, it reads like an eerie foreshadowing of a coming disaster. As production for the film got underway, stories slowly began to leak out about the horrendous conditions and health hazards that plagued the set. Every step of the filming process seemed to be a mess that only grew costlier and more dangerous as the days dragged on. The writing of the movie was a disaster. Studio execs worried that certain fantastical elements of the books would be too strange for a 1930s movie audience to buy into. So they fired screenwriter after screenwriter, 
searching for someone who could hedge the line between mystical and practical. One major point of contention was the land of Oz itself. In the books, Oz is very much a real place where Dorothy travels in an attempt to escape her unhappy home. But MGM execs thought it was too weird, which led to the film's biggest departure from the books. Turning Oz into a dream meant to teach Dorothy to be grateful for the life she wakes up to. For many of the actors and crew, the filming of the movie was more akin to a waking nightmare. It would be decades before the horrific working conditions would finally be brought to light. From day one, conditions were abhorrent, even for 1939. The set seemed cursed, and the studio execs grew concerned with how many injuries the cast was incurring. The actors' costumes were so involved that most of the cast were called to set as early as 4 a.m. for makeup and weren't allowed to leave until about 16 hours later. The costumes were unbearably hot. The cowardly lion suit weighed 90 pounds and was made from actual lion hide, and as such, absolutely reeked. Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, was literally green for weeks after the filming as the makeup stained her skin. And since Dorothy is written as a 12-year-old girl, studio execs wanted Judy Garland to look younger. They ordered her to wear constricting corsets that flattened her chest, but the corsets also made it near impossible to breathe. But nobody had it worse than the two actors who played the Tin Man. We've come to know Jack Haley as the beloved Tin Man who traipsed around Oz with Dorothy. But originally, an actor named Buddy Ebsen, who later went on to star in the Beverly Hillbillies, was cast in the role. The director wanted Ebsen to look like he was made of metal, so the costume department coated him with silver makeup made from aluminum powder. Ebsen would arrive on set at 4 a.m., and the makeup artists would begin coating him with thick, metallic paint. The costume was unbearably stiff, and the makeup caked his face, making it hard to wash off. From the moment filming began, he was essentially covered in aluminum powder 24 hours a day. Ebsen's costume was so heavy and put so much pressure on his shoulders and chest that he had trouble breathing, too. But during the second week of filming, Ebsen found himself gasping, unable to breathe entirely. He fell to the ground, fighting for air as crew called for an ambulance. It was like something out of a nightmare. Everyone stood around, watching Ebsen slowly choking to death, completely unable to help. He was rushed to the hospital, so deprived of oxygen that he started to black out. The doctors at the hospital quickly realized what had happened. After days of breathing in the aluminum powder from his makeup, Ebsen had grown horrifically ill. Ingesting large amounts of aluminum powder can lead to severe respiratory problems, and some studies have even linked inhaling the powder to Alzheimer's. His insides were completely coated with metal, making it difficult for oxygen to flow through his body. The doctors fought to get oxygen into Ebsen's lungs and wash off every hint of paint left on his body. Ebsen was left to recuperate in an iron lung or tank respirator for two weeks, 
Following that ordeal, he spent another two weeks recovering in an oxygen tent. Throughout his month-long recuperation, he kept fresh on his lines and worked to regain his strength so that he could step back into the filming of The Wizard of Oz, which he knew had continued filming without him. One day, halfway through his recovery process, he was ordered back to set by the heads of MGM. Even though he wasn't feeling up to filming, he decided to go, ever the dutiful actor. But he didn't make it out of the hospital. A nurse intercepted him and chided him until he got back into his oxygen tent. She then called MGM to explain that Ebsen was in no condition to film. That was the last he heard from studio execs for a while. When he had finally recovered, he reached out to let the film know he was ready to return to work, only to be served with the most shocking news of his career thus far. Apparently, the studio executives had never believed he was sick. It's not clear why heads at MGM developed a poor opinion of Ebsen, or whether they had bad blood, but they believed he had faked the illness to get out of the movie contract. Ebsen was dumbfounded to learn that he had already been recast by actor Jack Haley. The film that had nearly killed him couldn't be bothered to wait for him to make a full recovery. It was an underhanded move, one that sent a clear message to the entire cast. No actor is more important than a money-making movie. The rest of the cast was quick to fall in line and slow to make a complaint. But it only added to the already stressful work environment, especially when yet another actor left set in an ambulance. In a moment, Another actor falls victim to the wonderful Wizard of Oz. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1939, during the filming of The Wizard of Oz, Buddy Epson left the hospital after a harrowing brush with death only to discover that he'd been replaced as the Tin Man by a newcomer named Jack Haley. And while Haley managed to keep himself out of the emergency room, his experience as the Tin Man was more like death by a thousand cuts. His suit was made completely of metal, and as such, he couldn't sit down. He was forced to stand up for 16 hours a day. If he wanted a break, All he could do was lean against a set piece to lessen the weight on his feet. To add insult to injury, the Tin Man makeup, while thankfully no longer aluminum-based, gave him an eye infection. It was miserable, especially considering the fact that the set was broiling hot. The movie was one of the first to be filmed in Technicolor, which accounts for the vibrant hues that have become a trademark of the film. But to properly capture the bright colors of the Land of Oz, the set was blasted with an incredible number of stage lights, bringing the on-set temperature well over 100 degrees. It was sweltering, especially for Bert Lahr, the cowardly lion actor who wore a 90-pound suit made of real lion hide. 
Judy Garland recalls the set's temperature being an utter misery. It was so hot that she could barely breathe, constricted by a too tight corset meant to make her look like a preteen. Not only that, she was starving herself to fit into a costume that was purposely designed to force her to lose weight. But while Garland spent 12 hours a day under the lights slowly succumbing to exhaustion, it was her friend and co-star Margaret Hamilton whose costume would literally catch fire. In the film, when Hamilton first appears as the Wicked Witch of the West, having come to Munchkinland to discover that her sister is dead, she threatens Dorothy. Hamilton delivered what is now deemed one of the hundred most recognizable film quotes of all time. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. She then disappears in a puff of smoke and a lick of flame. The film set was rigged with a trap door that was meant to swallow Hamilton as the smoke and flames roared. She and Garland practiced the steps over and over again to make sure it was just right. They couldn't afford any slip-ups. But when they actually went to film the scene, the trapdoor malfunctioned and Hamilton's copper-based body paint caught fire. It happened so fast, it took Garland a moment to realize that her coworker was quite literally burning. She screamed as Hamilton dropped to the floor in a panic, trying to put out the flame. But the copper in her makeup only served as kindling. The crew members rushed to put out the fire, eating away at her costume. She, too, was sent to the emergency room. She sustained second-degree burns on large swaths of her body. Thankfully, the copper paint had somewhat protected her skin, but also made it harder to put the fire out. The flames cooked her skin so long that she suffered horrendous, debilitating burns. It took Hamilton six weeks to recuperate before she could finally return to set. The six weeks of recovery were agonizing, not just due to the burns covering Hamilton's body. She remembered how quickly Buddy Ebsen had been replaced on set and worried that she too would call MGM only to discover she'd been replaced. The thought was heartbreaking. Hamilton absolutely loved playing the Wicked Witch of the West. She originally fell in love with the character when reading the books and was flabbergasted to find out that in 1939, she was up for the part in the film version. She prayed that she had already filmed enough scenes to be kept on as the witch. In truth, she was so good at the part that no studio exec wanted to replace her. She was the one actor they refused to lose. But while in the hospital, Hamilton had a stunt double and stand-in named Betty Danko to take over for her. The hope was to film as many of the Wicked Witch's stunt scenes as possible, so when Hamilton returned to set, they would only need to film a few speaking scenes with her to wrap up the shoot. During one such stunt, Danko was supposed to fly away on a broomstick, smoke billowing out behind her. But when she jumped to make her getaway, the smoke machine malfunctioned. The smoke should have shot out downwards. Instead, it trapped Danko in a cloud of hot smoke. She was strapped to the broom, so she was helpless to escape the burning smoke. It burned her as the crew clambered to lower her down and free her. Judy Garland once again got a front row seat to the carnage. 
She watched helplessly as her co-worker quite literally went up in smoke. The smoke burned Danko's leg and left her rattled and badly injured, sending witch number two to the emergency room. The witch's winged helpers didn't fare much better. The flying monkeys were also taken to the hospital after the piano wires hoisting them into the air broke and sent them crashing to the floor. While the Wicked Witch's castle proved to be a hall of horrors, the Emerald City was also dangerous. One of the Emerald City guards accidentally stepped on Toto's paw, breaking it and sending the furry actor to the ER. And the horses used to pull carriages in the Emerald City fell victim to a weird makeup choice. To turn the horses purple, they were covered in colored jello crystals. The scenes were then filmed hastily before the horses could lick off the powder. But considering the fact that jello is made in part from boiled down horse bone, it adds a decidedly macabre layer to the scene. All the chaos would have you wondering who was in charge, but that wasn't so simple. Victor Fleming is the credited director of The Wizard of Oz, and the cast would certainly agree that he left the greatest mark on the Hollywood classic. He was once quoted as saying, obstacles make for a better picture, which might explain why he took to this particular film so well. But over the course of production, there were actually five directors that filled the chair. Because of this, the final product was a hack job of five different visions for the film spliced together like Frankenstein. It's a miracle the movie looks cohesive at all. Fleming was hired to replace Mervyn Leroy, the film's first director, who was fired less than a month into filming. It quickly became clear that Leroy didn't understand the story. In fact, in the very first iteration of the film, Judy Garland was put in a big blonde wig with baby doll makeup. From the moment she put on that early costume, she felt objectified. It felt wrong, like a child with sex appeal. It immediately worried her, but she was in no position to voice an opinion. Garland was relieved when Leroy was let go and Victor Fleming signed on to the project. But for the week between Leroy's firing and Fleming taking over, a man named George Cukor acted as director. He was notoriously hard on his female starlets, and Garland knew to be careful. Cukor is perhaps most famous for once having slapped Catherine Hepburn across the face when she spilled ice cream on her costume by accident. Judy escaped abuse by Cukor, but didn't have better luck with Fleming. In one of the more notable altercations on set, Garland was uncomfortable filming the scene where she slaps Bert Lahr, the actor who played the cowardly lion. She was so sheepish about slapping him that every take sent her into a fit of giggles. While the rest of the cast was having a good time watching Garland squirm, director Fleming grew tense, not willing to fall behind schedule. According to Michael Sregau in Victor Fleming, an American movie master, he grabbed Garland, slapped her across the face, and snapped, Now go in there and work. She didn't laugh after that. In fact, it only took her one try to finish the scene. Perhaps because the crew was stunned, or perhaps because Fleming was the boss, nobody did anything about the slap. Some even wrote it off as artistic genius, 
a director who knew just how to get what he needed from an actor. Garland has since stated that Victor Fleming felt terrible about the incident, so much so that he later asked Garland to slap him back. Garland refused, instead saying, I won't do that, but I'll kiss your nose. Victor Fleming never seemed like the type of person who would slap a teenager to get a take. But as time would tell, looks are often deceiving. Despite being demanding and on occasion abusive, Fleming brought some stability to the set, despite the fact that he was directing Gone with the Wind at the same time as The Wizard of Oz. He would be responsible for directing about 80% of the film, with two directors following in his wake to quickly wrap the project. Fleming rightly knew that Dorothy's baby doll look was all wrong and gave her the iconic pigtail she's known for today. It was a move that gave Garland and the rest of the cast confidence. This man understood the story he was telling. But that did little to dispel rumors around town. Word on the street was that The Wizard of Oz was shaping up to be an unmitigated disaster, citing the frequent injuries and almost constant director turnover as cause for concern. But no on-set disaster would take away from the overwhelming success of the movie. This was largely because Judy Garland was willing to go to any length to ensure the movie's success, including sacrificing her own health. She allowed the studios to push her to extremes because she suspected that The Wizard of Oz would be her first box office smash. To her credit, Garland was right. 20 million Americans saw The Wizard of Oz when it was first released in theaters, about one in six Americans at the time. The escapist movie caught on like wildfire. When the film debuted in 1939, towards the end of the Great Depression, about 20% of the American workforce was unemployed. For the first time since the Civil War, Americans were starving. Amidst such hopeless, dire conditions, it's easy to see how quickly the public would gravitate towards a film that assured them that all they needed to survive was a brain, a heart, and a little courage. Years after the film debuted in theaters, The Wizard of Oz premiered on television in 1956 and truly became a cultural landmark. It also helped bring the movie overseas, where international audiences fell in love with Dorothy, the brave heroine from Kansas. By 1956, then 34-year-old Judy Garland was one of the most internationally recognized movie stars on the planet. She would go on to have an illustrious career as an actor and singer, but no role would ever eclipse the success and recognition she found as Dorothy. She poured her entire heart into the filming of the movie, knowing she had to deliver absolute perfection or she would never be given another leading role again. But every day she was picked apart by the adults around her who called her fat, clumsy, even a hunchback. She endured endless harassment at the hands of her directors, studio execs, and some fellow actors. Her hope was that her performance would propel her career forward and finally give her some control over her career. But she was only 17, too young and impressionable to withstand the onslaught of maltreatment and criticism. 
She began to spiral out of control, unable to ignore the constant criticism, the threats to stay skinny and young. The abuse she suffered on set would lead her down a dark road that ended 30 years later when her body finally collapsed. In the wake of her death in 1969, the public would learn that she had spent her life addicted to barbiturates and crash diets, a pattern of self-sabotaging behavior learned on the set of The Wizard of Oz. Those closest to Garland have often said that she gave everything to filming the movie, and eventually, it took her life. We'll learn more about Garland's tragic story in a moment. Now back to the story. By the time filming wrapped on The Wizard of Oz in 1939, almost every actor on set had been harmed in some way. But as Judy Garland's story has become more public, it's clear that nobody had a harder time during filming than the 17-year-old star. It's a well-known fact that Judy Garland suffered physical and mental abuse on set from studio execs and the director Victor Fleming even from several of the actors playing Munchkins. Some of the crew who worked on set recalled that many of the actors who played the Munchkins rallied together to bully Garland. They made a game out of sticking their hands up her skirt and tried to embarrass her on set. Bear in mind, she was only 17 at the time, and the Munchkins were actors in their 40s. In fact, the Munchkins were the only group of actors to come away from the process relatively unscathed. They gleaned a great deal of enjoyment out of harassing Garland whenever they got the chance. But they've also been accused of bringing mass amounts of drugs to set and hiring sex workers to pass the time in their trailers. But possibly the biggest source of Judy's anxiety was the many spies that had been hired by studio executives lurking around set, watching Garland's every move. It might seem insane, but studio execs at MGM considered Garland to be one of the heavier actresses the studio had on contract and made it a priority for her to lose weight. She was naturally thin, but not skinny, and many of the executives believed that had to do with her eating habits instead of biology. So they paid off members of the cast and crew to spy on her. She wasn't able to trust anyone on set, as her every moment was being watched. In order to look like a preteen, Garland was asked to lose 12 pounds before filming. Then during filming, producer Louis B. Mayer, one of the co-founders of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, a.k.a. MGM, ordered that she go on a crash diet. This left her emaciated for most of production. She was only allowed to drink chicken broth on set. Mayer was convinced that Judy was too fat to play the role of Dorothy. Throughout her teenage years, Mayer was notoriously hard on Judy, bullying her about her weight, often calling her his little hunchback. It was utterly cruel. If and when she dared to eat solid food, she would be hauled into his office and yelled at. But it wasn't what was said during these meetings that gave the most immediate cause for concern. In one chilling encounter, Garland recalls being groped by Mayer in his office when she was only 16. 
She later said she didn't think she could say no to the powerful executive. It might seem odd that a man who was attracted to Garland enough to grope her would also decide that she fell short of his beauty standards. But in actuality, a plethora of research shows this duality isn't uncommon. Author Dr. David Snarsh suggests that people who seek to control other people's bodies in this way typically do so because they feel inadequate or cannot control themselves. In all likelihood, he was seeking to control Garland as a way of making himself feel more powerful. His groping her and obsession with her weight probably had very little to do with whether or not he actually thought she was fat. And yet, despite all this, there is an endearing picture of the two of them dancing at a party, Garland in a frilly dress, Mayer beaming at her like a proud father. Their relationship was undoubtedly abusive, albeit nuanced. It's unlikely he actually believed the awful insults he hurled at her. And despite all the embarrassment and harassment, Garland seems to have cared greatly about Mayer's opinion, not that she trusted him. After the meeting in which Mayer groped her, Garland avoided one-on-one meetings with him as best she could, and she clung to her diet as best she could. But restrictions on her only tightened. As a 16-year-old, she was forced to smoke cigarettes to suppress her appetite, But because of her starvation diet, she had a hard time keeping energy up. She was so weak that she began falling asleep around set and feeling dizzy under the hot Technicolor lights. That's when producers began giving her barbiturates to keep her awake. At the time, it was common for studio execs to give drugs called uppers to their child stars. The kids were being asked to work 14-hour days in addition to school. They were exhausted throughout filming, but uppers kept their energy up so they could film through excruciatingly long days. Then, at the end of the day, kid stars would take additional drugs called downers to help them fall asleep. It's no exaggeration to say that child stars in 1930s Hollywood were on drugs constantly. MGM execs put Garland on such a barbiturates routine coupled with her starvation diet. Her body was ravaged by drugs, cigarettes, and malnutrition. And as is to be expected, she was unable to kick these ruthless habits once filming of The Wizard of Oz wrapped. It was the beginning of a barbiturates addiction and eating disorder that she battled for the rest of her life. In a later interview, Garland's disordered eating was highlighted after she described herself in The Wizard of Oz. She said, looking back, I was frightful. I was fat. A fat little pig in pigtails. Anyone familiar with the movie can see that this is clearly untrue. Garland looked trim and angelic, an utter beauty. If anything added bulk to her tiny frame, it was the unnecessary corset that constricted her ribcage. At that point, Mayer's constant objectification of Garland had taken hold, and would always affect her self-perception. After filming on The Wizard of Oz wrapped, she continued working for MGM for another eight years, until 1947. During that time, her drug addiction spiraled out of control on several occasions, causing her to be fired from the films The Barclays of Broadway 
Annie gets your gun at Royal Wedding. Like many child stars of the day, Garland was never really able to develop her own sense of self, and instead began throwing herself into a series of ultimately failed relationships, looking for an acceptance she never felt from her employers. She married director David Rose in 1941 at the age of 19. At the time, it was scandalous. Rose was 12 years her senior and newly divorced. Nevertheless, the two eloped in Las Vegas. But their honeymoon phase would be short-lived. By 1944, their relationship was crumbling. That same year, Garland met director Vincent Minnelli on the set of Meet Me in St. Louis, and the two quickly fell for one another. In 1945, 23-year-old Garland officially divorced David Rose. Her marriage to Minnelli followed so quickly, she may as well have picked up the marriage license on her way out of divorce court. In 1946, Garland welcomed her first of three children, her daughter Liza. Liza Minnelli was Hollywood royalty from the moment she was born and is easily Garland's most famous offspring. But motherhood was an enormous responsibility to stack on top of Garland's already imposing work schedule, all the while battling addiction and eating disorders. She was exhausted, hungry, and emotionally abused by the studio executives at MGM. In 1947, she suffered a nervous breakdown and tried to commit suicide on two separate occasions. Finally, she left MGM later that year, when she was only 25 years old. Much like her relationship with David Rose, Garland's marriage to Minnelli deteriorated quickly. It had fallen to pieces by 1949, just four years into their marriage, though the two would not officially divorce until 1952, when Garland was 30. In 1951, Garland began working to actively rebuild her career, which had taken a hit since leaving MGM. She began performing on Broadway and started working as a singer and entertainer on television, gigs that would serve her well throughout the rest of her short life. And throughout the 50s and 60s, Garland would go on to marry three more men, Broadway producer Sid Luft in 1952, actor Mark Herron in 1965, and her fourth and final husband, Mickey Deans, in 1969. Deans and Garland were blissfully happy for the first three months of their marriage. But then, on a hot night in June 1969, Mickey Deans awoke to find his wife missing from bed and the bathroom light on. When he went to check in on her, he found her collapsed on the bathroom floor. He called an ambulance, but there was nothing to be done. Judy Garland was already dead. Garland died on June 22, 1969, of a barbiturate overdose. She was just 47 years old. No aspect of Garland's career would ever eclipse her early success as Dorothy. She was incapable of escaping the film that essentially ruined her life. Meanwhile, Louis Mayer maintained a well-respected position in Hollywood and politics, with MGM still producing films today. 
and Wizard of Oz director Victor Fleming would be heralded for his work as the director of Gone with the Wind, a box office smash hit that made him the most wanted director in Hollywood. If anyone deserved to have a career ruined, it was Fleming. He was a known Nazi sympathizer who was also vocal about how much he hated the British. Later, one of his actors, Anne Revere, who worked with Fleming on The Yearling, would recall how flagrant he was in his support of Nazi Germany. Yet for whatever reason, he was left to hobnob around Hollywood unchecked, enjoying an illustrious career. While Judy Garland battled addiction and abuse, Fleming and Mayer enjoyed the spoils of smash hit films. And for all the horror stories that leaked from the set of the film, the most horrendous would stay hidden for 50 years. Around Christmas in 1989, The Wizard of Oz was shown on television. And as usual, the network airing the movie enjoyed a ratings boost as families across the country gathered round to watch the film. But in the wake of that airing, a rumor began to circulate. Someone, somewhere, had noticed something that had gone unnoticed for more than 50 years. As Dorothy, the Tin Man, and the Scarecrow exit the dark forest for the last time, they dance past an eerie shadow that seems to sway in the wind. The shadow, it appears, is that of a dead body, a lifeless corpse swinging from one of the trees. Someone had hung themselves. The widespread rumor is that it was the body of a munchkin actor who had fallen in love with one of his fellow munchkins. But when she didn't return his love, he fell into a deep depression. No longer able to stand working beside her day in and day out, knowing she would never love him back, he hung himself. While this story is tragic, it doesn't exactly make sense. The scenes in the dark forest were filmed before the munchkin actors ever arrived on set, so it would have been impossible for the dead body to have been a munchkin. Eventually, a more plausible explanation began to circulate, but the story is even more heartbreaking. According to legend, one of the MGM producers had a teenage daughter who was longing to break into show business. She loved the Oz books and begged her father to cast her as Dorothy in the film, but for whatever reason, he refused. Heartbroken at having lost her dream role to Judy Garland, she decided to seek the ultimate revenge against her father and hung herself on the set of his magnum opus. That way, he could never watch the movie without seeing the body of his dead daughter hanging lifeless from a tree. It was an act of grisly, horrific revenge. This piece of Wizard of Oz lore has become the single most famous rumor to spread about the film, likely because it's gruesome and macabre and plays to our most morbid curiosities. But thankfully, according to a set dresser who worked on the film, it's also completely false. The real story is that a set designer rented 400 exotic birds to be used during filming, several of which escaped and proved hard to recapture. Among them was a rogue crane that made its way to the fake trees on set, and its massive shadow can be seen swaying back and forth during the scene in question. Even still, 
the dark shadow seems to loom over the set like an omen. And while some were able to shake the omen after the movie wrapped, others, like Judy Garland, would find the dark shadow never quite left. Thanks again for tuning in to the Dark Side Of's Summer of 69 special. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd to August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode and a new season of The Dark Side Of next week. If you're interested in learning more about the Summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Aaron Lan and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>